Welcome to a new episode of the Activism Academy podcast with your co-hosts Miriam Fanin and Eva Kalonen. Today, we are joined by Tom Johnston. Tom is an environmental activist with quite a long history of participation. He is based in North Wales, where he cooperates with Greenpeace, Amnesty International and Fish Act. He also carries out various educational programs. He will tell us about his journey, what activism tools he relies on and what activism itself means to him. Good afternoon and welcome to a new episode of the Activism Academy podcast. Today with us we have Tom. You are an activist in quite many fields. So if you would like to start by introducing yourself and your work. Yeah, hi. Thanks very much for having me. So um, professionally, I am a climate change, green infrastructure and natural flood management officer for a county council in North Wales. But um, in my activism world, I'm also the Fish Act training director. I'm the area coordinator for an organization called British Divers Marine Life Rescue, um, who do um, seal rescue and whale and dolphin stranding uh, response and rescues. And I'm also on the Greenpeace UK climbing team. So a little bit about how I got into activism. Sure. Yeah. How yeah. drew you? What drew you to this field of activism? And uh, yeah, if you would like to share with us your life story, which is quite amazing. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. I'm not sure I'd go that far, but um, yeah. So I grew up with um, a, quite a, an active um, political campaigning mum. She ran the local Greenpeace group and she'd been a, a campaigner and an activist for them from before I was born. She was also very active in the vegetarian and vegan movement back in the um, 80s and 90s, which in the UK was certainly in its in its infancy. We were um, we were the odd ones out being vegetarians in my community growing up. Um, and so some of my earliest memories were being on the um, campaign store with her and, and handing petitions over to local MPs. And I grew up in the outdoors and on the coast in North Wales. So I spent a lot of time outdoors and I had a lot of connection with nature and wildlife and the environment. And I think those two things pulled together to really give me a, a strong drive to try and look after the natural environment. Um, and I guess my desire to make meaningful change by whatever means were necessary um, has sort of pulled me pulled me more towards the seas and the oceans because I've found more opportunities for my skill set um, for me to be able to step in and make a, a significant meaningful difference um, and that's probably a product of where I grew up and, and the skills that I have professionally and the experiences I have but I've also been very conscious to make sure I don't put all of my eggs in one basket so I don't do focus all of my energy and efforts in just one way because if I later on find out I was wrong or that those efforts have, have not been successful, then that would be wasted energy. Yeah, absolutely. How, considering how long you have been involved in different aspects of activism, have you seen particular changes in the last decade, 20 years, uh, also considering the growth and influence of technology? Yeah, for sure. I think the big thing that 
we need to be really conscious of and and really thankful for is that activism has become more mainstream so you know only a couple of years ago if if a kid didn't turn up to school on a friday um you know if they were one of the early adopters of the um the fridays for future school strikes they were really out there on a limb whereas now it's just become that much more mainstream and the public awareness has become so much greater about the scale of the risks that we're facing. Um, I think that activism is now seen as far more of a, a rational and acceptable response to the situation that we're in. One of the downsides of that is that if you are trying to use the media to help you achieve your campaign goals and you need to get headlines and you need to get media coverage then your action has to become either more extreme or more unusual because the media gets bored of the same old same old and just won't feature you so the the example in the UK at the moment is the insulate Britain protests where they're blocking the roads it's not a new tactic we had the roads protest here in the in the 80s and 90s and we had major motorways blocked for much much longer periods of time but it's a tactic that hasn't been used that much in recent years and so by reusing that tactic now it's grabbing campaign headlines if insulate britain continue to just sit in the road and hold a banner in front of traffic in a year's time nobody will be interested and they won't get any media coverage so the internet has helped making everything more accessible for some, but at the same time also we could say it has made it more dangerous? The internet has made it much easier for us to create networks and communities that are not geographically tied and linked. So I work really closely with activists in Germany who I only see every couple of years. Um, and because we're able to remove that geographical barrier, we're able to pull in more focused, more specific skill sets to be more targeted in our action. It doesn't matter that I live in a community where there are no other marine biologists, for example, because I can work with the rest of the team at Fish Act who are based in Germany, based in the Netherlands, based all over the UK, and we can draw on each other's skills. I don't need those people around me. The downside of the social media and the, the increase in ease of communication is that, yes, it's a tool and a skill that we can now use to our benefit, but it can also be used by the other side and it can be used against us. So it's now far easier for lunatics like Trump to have an international coverage on a daily basis and to be able to pump out fake news. Whereas even just in recent history, you know, in George Bush's day, yeah, we knew he was a lunatic and he was coming out with some really crazy ideas and stuff. But it wasn't being constantly pumped into our, our world on an hour by hour basis. So you were talking about different forms of activism to counter this um, this stream of normalization of, uh, of news and where people just get used to having news and how to stand out and that makes me wonder what are the different forms of activism that you rely on from tying yourself to a tree to academic research what tools are there and how do you decide which ones to use so i suppose it depends on your your view of direct act direct action or activism 
Um, for me, direct action and activism are almost a, a way of life, almost a, a day-to-day concept of, of who you are and how you behave in the world around you. I think that activism is any act that makes a meaningful difference. So litter picking is activism. Educational outreach is activism, talking to people and challenging the, the social conscience around topics is activism. You can make a significant positive difference in two minutes of your day or over the phone in a conversation. But protest and lobbying and campaigning is all activism and locking yourself onto something, doing a sit in or doing an occupation. They're all forms of activism and they're all tools in the toolbox. And I suppose it comes down to either stopping something or demonstrating a better way. And for me, the critical part of that has always been that it's nonviolent direct action. And we know that different organizations have slightly different slants on on the nonviolent aspect of that. You know, famously, um, Greenpeace and and Sea Shepherd have disagreed, and and there's been all of the the wranglings backwards and forwards online about who's better and who's doing this and that differently, and all the rest of it. But but ultimately, the difference is that Sea Shepherd see violence as something that can only be acted upon a living person, animal, or organism, and so they're quite happy to commit acts of significant criminal damage which some would argue are are acts of violence whereas Greenpeace isn't and I think engaging with that and thinking about that and seeing where morally you sit on this is really important because I mean if we if we stripped the environmental aspect of it away if there was a house on fire across the street and you knew there was kids in it would you worry about whether you were going to smash down the front door or put a brick through the window to go and get those kids out of that house? No, not at all. It wouldn't be seen as a violent act. It would be an entirely rational and reasonable action given the circumstances. And I think that's an important part of activism is questioning whether the action that you are about to take is reasonable given the circumstances. That is a very interesting and eye-opening take. And in, in regards to that, when do you decide to take direct action? And can you also tell us more about these actions you took yourself? So I suppose I personally have taken taken action or taken direct action, you know, the the big the big things that I've done over the years, the the classic direct action um, actions that I have taken. I've taken those when either something has been politically right on the cusp of being being signed in being agreed when it shouldn't and it needed a real media spike it needed people to look at it and to pay attention to something that is pretty dull and nobody's interested in otherwise and that's when a media stunt i think is is valuable and is is a reasonable tool to be using um or when something really needs to stop immediately because there's there's a, there's a major problem right there and then. So, I mean, actions that I've taken over the years, 
well quite recently i've been responding to um to to seal call outs as part of british divers marine life rescue so last weekend we got a call to say there was an injured young seal on the beach that had been attacked by a dog and it was covered in dog bites and young seals are wild animals with very sharp teeth and they carry diseases and illnesses um and so you know they're not cute and fluffy and easy to just go and pick up off the beach and so taking myself out of my day-to-day life and going down to the beach and tackling a wild animal so that we can take it into a vet so that it can be treated and rehabilitated and released i see that as a form of of action of direct action um and why did i do it well because there's only a handful of people in the area who can do it and on the day it turned out a couple of us turned up but you need a couple of you to be able to pick up a big wild animal and get it off the beach if i hadn't have responded that animal would have stayed on the beach would probably have been attacked by another dog and would have ended up dying so i had to go because if i didn't go nothing would happen um when i've taken action in the last few years as as part of um some greenpeace actions you know we occupied an oil rig in the in scotland um to stop it being towed out into the north sea to to go out to a new oil field and why did i go and do that well because there's not a huge number of people in the country who can go and get off a powerboat and climb onto an oil rig and climb up into the the metalwork underneath it and then occupy that space for three days regardless of what the weather's doing and hold that position and physically stop the oil rig from being towed out to sea so i'm not the sort of person who will you know i'm I'm definitely not a troublemaker and I'm not the sort of person who's just going to go and jump at the next direct action because somebody says something's happening and and they need more people to wade in there. I'll look at it and question whether the issue needs direct action taking on it or whether there's another method, whether we can campaign or lobby or sit down and talk about it. But if it can't, if direct action is the right tool and you need the skill set that I have and that skill set is limited, then I'll take action. So we could say you have found your own space where to take action. I suppose so. Um, I suppose I could have found a, a far bigger space by saying yes to more things. But I've been I've been choosy because I'm also very conscious that your time and your energy is a finite resource. And so I can only take action in so many ways in a week or in a month or in a year before the impact and the consequence of that action is so great that it stops me from being able to live my normal life. And if you're going to do things like going and boarding an oil rig, you know you're going to get arrested and you know there's going to be a punishment for it. And so actually those three days you spend on the oil rig seems like a big time commitment, but actually it's the four months you spend on bail and then the 15 months afterwards that you spend doing community service you know, I did 130 hours of community service. I only did 60 hours on the oil rig. So for every hour I was on the oil rig, I spent two hours of punishment time for that action. And you have to be calculated about it and count that in. And like I've mentioned a few times, looking at the tools that are available to you, is there another way of tackling this issue that isn't as disruptive to the world at large and community around you is just as effective 
and doesn't cost you as much in time, energy, money, and your freedoms. Choose your battles. <laughs> pick your battles and then pick the right tool for that battle. Absolutely. And I remember the last time we spoke, you said something that stuck with me quite much. Uh, you said that in quite in many parts of the world, if you are not arrested, you cannot be considered an activist. So we have a, quite a wide spectrum of the activism space. So you have safer areas where have, being an activist doesn't have huge consequences on one's life, but we also have other areas where if you decide to take direct action, it will result in actual jail time. So what's your take on this as an activist yourself? Yeah, for sure. I I have always said that if if an issue is so great and is so immediate and is so necessary that action is taken to, to stop it, that the threat of jail time isn't going to be a major deciding factor in whether I step in or not. Um, you know, in in just the same way as that analogy that I used before, of if a house was on fire across the street, you wouldn't stop and pause to think about whether you might get in trouble for criminal damage of breaking someone's door down to go in and get those kids out. It wouldn't even cross your mind. And I've always come come to activism with that approach but I do not want to go to prison prison's not going to be fun and it's not a place I want to go and spend any of my time so yeah I I mean as we've as I've just said uh, I come at it from I think quite a pragmatic approach of is this action appropriate for the scale of the issue for the immediacy of the issue for the other methods that we have already tried to use and is the fallout from it going to be acceptable to me and appropriate? I think what I found really shocking is when I do speak to people from other parts of the world who are trying to tackle the same issues that I'm trying to tackle in a very similar context, but because of the society that they live in, the community, the regime, the consequences are wildly different. So, I've taken action numerous times across Europe. Um, I've been held in police custody a number of times and and I've gone through the court process a number of times. But I think the longest I've ever spent in a cell is 17 hours. I remember talking to an activist from the Philippines who said that over there, if you took any form of direct action, you got arrested and sent to prison. If you were seen to challenge the, I guess it's challenging the, the political um, situation that, that they're in. Um, if you stand up and speak out, you'll go to prison for it. And so what that meant is that if you have never gone to prison, you've never stood up and spoken out enough for it to really count. Now, that concept is terrifying for me because I would have gone to prison 50 times over by now if I'd grown up in that world. But what it really reaffirmed to me is that I live in a in a world, you know, in the UK where I can take reasonable direct action to deal with issues that justifiably need action taken against them without that massive impingement on my civil liberties and the judicial system that I live in, in the country that I live in. I'm kind of OK with the way it works. 
because if people just were free to just go out there and do whatever they did without any impingement then yes direct activists would never be at risk of arrest but there'd also be a whole load of nutcases out there doing a whole load of stuff that's really quite dangerous and impactful on other people's lifestyles that we don't want those people wandering the streets so i'm all right with direct activism having to answer to the political system and to the judicial system when action has been that great and and i think when you look at the political uh, when you look at the um, judicial system in the uk and the history of activism in the uk very very few environmental activists have ever really gone to prison because there is that that sense check built into the system where if you're arrested for criminal damage as an activist you stand up in court and you explain yourself to the judge and you say yes i've been arrested for criminal damage this is the issue that i was trying to stop from happening or trying to flag to the public's attention and therefore it was reasonable action and that was very different to somebody standing up in court for being arrested for criminal damage because they got drunk in the pub and as they walked out of the pub they got in a fight with their friend and they picked a wheelie bin up and threw it through a, a car windscreen and caused a thousand pounds worth of damage to someone else's private property they're both in theory criminal damage but when you get to the courts they're dealt with in in a different way and i'd rather have that than you've committed criminal damage you go into prison for three months which is what happens in some parts of the world. It's especially sad to know that uh, in particular indigenous environmental activists are very prone to being assaulted or even assassinated for the work they're doing. So in the same vein my question to you is what does it mean to be a white middle class male activist and how do you navigate your privilege? So interesting as you were saying that one of my earliest memories I suppose of activism but also in life as a child growing up with my mum who was really active in Greenpeace I remember Ken Sarawiwa being executed by I'm hesitating briefly by Shell or you know because of of his activism I remember that happening as a young child and being really blown away by that and I don't think I consciously put the pieces together and realized that as a as a white kid growing up in a nice family in the UK I had a privilege that he obviously had not had um, but over the over years have gone by I have realized that there are things that I can do because of who I am and because of where I live that other people can't and there are actions that I can take um, a really close friend of mine once climbed onto the roof of the Houses of Parliament in London and there's this fantastic photo of him waving a huge Greenpeace banner stood on the roof of the Houses of Parliament and whilst that protest was happening I was actually working with some guys from the military and their first response when this action hit the news was he's lucky not to have a bullet in the back of his head because it's the Houses of Parliament and there are armed response police officers surrounding that place and there are police officers with sniper rifles on buildings around there but if you put the word greenpeace across your shoulders and climb over a fence anybody who's got a gun in their hand and sees you do it is going to pause is going to hesitate and he's going to check with their superior 
is that person really from Greenpeace? Are they actually a direct activist or are they a lunatic, a terrorist in a Greenpeace jumper? And actually, I do need to shoot them because the worst political move that the UK police could ever, ever commit would be to shoot a Greenpeace activist. And so as a white male, you know, physically able bodied activist in the UK, that means that I can take action that people in other parts of the world or even other people in this country can't take. Um, you know, I have opportunities, financial training, freedom to travel that have come to me because of who I am. And I'm very grateful for them. It gives me a quality of life that I really enjoy. And I don't think that any of those opportunities that I have had have had a massively detrimental impact on somebody else. So I don't think my gain has directly been somebody else's loss, but my gain should also be able to be used for the benefit of not just myself, the benefit of others. And I think it's of absolute critical importance that we have a diverse community in every sense of the word, not just a diverse activist community, but diversity within all of our communities makes us all stronger and happier and healthier. And that diversity means that we do need people from different backgrounds and different points of view and different cultural and sexual and physically able-bodied. And, and we need those different worldviews that come from growing up in a different skin or in a different gender or in a different household or in a different part of the world because it brings different ideas to the table and it brings brings sort of safety mechanisms to the conversation where I can go this is my point of view and if I'm in a room with 15 other white guys who grew up in North Wales chances are they'll have a similar point of view and yeah our points of view might be different because my parents were vegetarian greenpeace activists and somebody else's might not have been but they're not going to be as different as if we've got somebody who grew up in the middle of the amazon rainforest we sit them down in that group of 20 the diversity of points of view in that group has just gone through the roof well and if we keep going around the room and we mix it up then we add even more points of view which gives us an even more robust worldview but with that I am also aware as a white man that I really want to strive for, I want to strive beyond equality. I want to strive to equity. I want everybody to have the same opportunities that I have. And the opportunities that I have shouldn't impinge upon the opportunities anybody else has. But the same should be true the other way around. And I've been with COP26 happening at the moment. I've been to quite a few events recently um, of gatherings of, of people and professionals and school children. And the one thing that's really started to strike, strike me is the massive lack of young white men. I just, I'm just not seeing them. And I don't know what's happened and I don't know where they've gone, but I was at, a, at an event the other day where there were seven schools of school children between the ages of seven and 17 coming, 90% of the school kids were young women. And that's fantastic because two decades ago, there wouldn't have been any young women given the, the stage like that. But why aren't the young boys engaging in this conversation and in this topic? And what are they engaging in? And are they just completely disengaging? 
And if they are, that could be a real damage to our movement in 15 or 20 years time. So I think that equity and balance and removing barriers is the key thing and giving everybody a, a fair platform and a fair opportunity to engage and to take part and also remembering that people's differences aren't all obvious and actually sometimes there could be more difference between two white middle class guys in a room than there could be between you and me of different genders and having grown up in different countries because you and I are both activists and we both care about the world and I know a lot of white men around me here who are not activists and do not care about the world in the way that you and I do so I think that's an important aspect to remember in the equality and equity and diversity side of the movement. That's a great point too something to reflect upon definitely especially in the future considering how we are always talking about inclusive spaces and of course to see somebody actively disengage is uh, it's quite shocking and quite will have consequences of course on the dialogue and since you brought up GOP26 I was wondering what's your expectations on it what do you think about it oh um what's my expectations on it I don't know that my expectations on it are as great as they possibly should be given that I have this platform to speak to people and to encourage people to engage and to care and to take action I think that the I've been an activist for over 30 years I've been around a long time and the issues that we're facing now aren't that different to the issues we were facing 30 years ago and the amount of significant change that has happened at a corporate level and at a governmental level is really not that big in comparison to the the scaly issues that we're facing so I would love to say that I think COP26 is going to make all of the right commitments and say all the right things and is going to save the world but I'm not sure that's going to going to going to happen the one thing I will say is that I do think the um, take up of carbon credits is going to significantly alter the environmental and carbon sequestration offsetting world that we have existed in because let's face it big business only cares about money that's the only thing they are interested in it's the only thing they have ever been interested in and any activist who thinks that they can pull on the um the conscience conscience and heartstrings of big business is in my opinion deluded i'm sorry but big business is only interested in money and anything else that they are doing ultimately goes back to money and if we legislate that big business has to legally reduce their hit net zero by 2050 they only have two options they have the option to stop putting out as much carbon dioxide or they have the option to buy carbon offsetting credits to offset the carbon they have been emitting and of course that's what they'll do because why would they want to change business as usual when they can just spend a little bit extra on buying some trees and look like they're being heroes that's much easier it's much cheaper and it means far less change to their business model so that is what's what will happen 
But what that means is that there is going to be a massive, massive influx of money into tree planting projects, into peatland restoration projects. And hopefully some of that will get diverted into indigenous tribes lands in the Amazon, in, you know, all over the world. And hopefully some of that money closer to home will go into tree planting projects that are run by people who have a big picture biodiversity worldview and are able to take that money and spend it on woodland planting projects that are of genuine benefit to the local community, to biodiversity and to the, the health of the ecosystem. So there's a lot of money coming, coming our way, maybe not yours and my way, but coming our way. And that will be a good thing, although it is going to take a massive shift in our mindset because we're going to have to start playing the game the way big businesses play it, which is money and profits in order to make the most of that and to make the differences that we can with that cash. We've touched upon quite a range of topics and to sum up, I would just like to ask you a very simple question. What advice do you have for those venturing into the world of activism? So I knew you were going to ask me that. So I've got three things. Um, one is don't think that activism equals arrest. Going and picking litter can be activism. Activism can fill every part of your life and it doesn't mean getting arrested and having major consequences. Second one is don't get bogged down in the micro conflict and internal disagreements. It drains our energy, it distracts us from the greater issues and we will always find something to disagree on. But if we stop disagreeing for a minute and we look at the bigger things that we agree on and the big things that we know need tackling, we can work together on that and we can make significant impact. If we're all fighting over the little details, then the big business will just continue heading in the direction it's heading in and we won't notice because we'll be arguing internally. And my last one, I think is going to be quite a difficult one for people. And it's to listen to the other side. No matter how contemptuous or displeasing you find their point of view it'll help you deliver develop firmer and more actionable worldviews and that will mean engaging with some conversations that are utterly sickening because there are people out there who don't think that migrant refugees should be rescued out of the sea but in order to have the most robust argument and case to disprove them you have to hear their point of view and you have to listen through it and identify if there is one percent of it which is valid and then come up with the reason to disprove that one bit but if you never listen to the alternative point of view if you only ever listen to your friends you're in an echo chamber and when you are put on the put on a spot uh, in a debate or in a conversation around the dinner table, you won't have the arguments you need to change minds and win hearts. Absolutely. Also, you have given me my new life's motto. I really love the sentence, we can always find something to disagree on. <laughs> <laughs> so I have one last question. It's our traditional closing question at the Activism Academy podcast. Could you suggest a documentary, a film or a book for anybody that would like to get to know more your field of work? 
Yeah, totally. So um, again, I'm going to be a little bit cheeky here. I've got three. Um, so the work that I do with Fish Act, I'm massively passionate about, and we would love more people to engage and more citizen scientists around the world. So if you have a look for either on the Fish Act website or there is a short Fish Act documentary called Fighting Illegal Fishing. Um, go and have a watch of that. It's only a short one, but that will give you a bit of an insight into the undercover investigation work that we do. And if you're looking for a bit of reading, then I think any activist, um, more for historical context and for understanding where we've come from, should go and read The Monkey Wrench Gang. It's uh, a fictional story, but loosely based around the um, the birth of Earth First in America. And it's a very good read. I don't necessarily uh, suggest that you use it as a manual for how to um, take action, but it's a good read. Um, and then lastly, um, there's a book called Feral by George Monbiot about rewilding. And I thought I knew a lot about rewilding and I do a lot of those sorts of projects through work. And I read that book and I learned an awful lot. So that is definitely worth either a read or a download as an audiobook. Thank you so much, Tom. Uh, we've learned a lot from you and we hope that our listeners also enjoyed uh, your pieces of advice and an insight into the life of an activist who does direct action, but also reserves other spots in his activism. And I, I would like to applaud you for all the efforts that you do for, for the wildlife, the animals, the earth, and ultimately for all of us. So thank you for being here and talking about it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm deeply privileged that you asked me to come and speak. And yeah, I am really looking forward to listening to lots more of your podcasts and hearing much more of your great work that you're doing. So keep it up. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom, for having joined us today. And thank you, dear listeners, for making it to the end. See you soon with more content and new episodes. Thank you.